Well, good morning, church. If you have your Bibles, open up to uh, Galatians chapter 4 as we uh, continue our series. Uh, We did forget to announce, just as a reminder, we sent it out uh, different ways, but uh, the Love, Inc. uh, Night of Vision, uh, which is scheduled for uh, this Friday, uh, November 6th, Um, because of the COVID restrictions, they were breaking up the numbers into different churches. Um, The numbers that they're getting are a little bit smaller, so they've, they've limited the number of venues. So if you had tickets for this venue... It's now for Singing Hills Church. And if you have questions about that, you can see uh, Larry Ackerman or call him. So the Night of Vision, then you change over to uh, Singing Hills. So there you go. Uh, Last night, uh, my youngest daughter came over with my littlest granddaughter to kind of surprise us with with her uh, Halloween costume. She... uh, um, had a little strawberry costume on, and so she was the only trick-or-treater we got. Uh, they got there kind of late, and she was kind of tired, so a little fussy. And uh, as she was in the house, and there's all sorts of stuff going on, the dogs running around, which is really exciting to her, and all these people, from across the room, she would smile at me. Um, and she was, you know, giving me the little the grandpa eyes from across the room, but every time mom handed her to me, she screamed. Uh, And, you know, it hurts as a grandpa, but it also just brought up all the wounds from high school, you know, when you think that cute girl from across the room is smiling at you, but when she gets close, ah, no. You know, sometimes when when we're talking about church and the gospel, sometimes from afar, like this idea of God's love and God's forgiveness and joy in the Lord, it sounds great. And sometimes when we get closer, people change the script a little bit and we kind of go, ah, that isn't what I signed up for. And some of that is true for the Galatian church. Paul came and preached a gospel of freedom and forgiveness in Christ. And somebody came back through the churches and said, no, 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 you, you need to be a child of Abraham And the way that you become a child of Abraham is to obey all these rules and regulations. That's what you have to do. And now Paul is writing them going, you foolish Galatians, right? That's what he said. Who's bewitched you? And I have to say, Galatians is not one of the easier books to really just read and get. And part of that is because there's just so much backstory and history. So today we're in Galatians chapter 4. We're going to start in verse 21, read through chapter 5, verse 1. And what I want to do, and and many commentators had this outline, of just looking at the historical situation that Paul is writing into. And then he mentions that this historical situation can have an allegorical interpretation. So we're going to look at the historical, the allegorical, and then really the practical application for this. So look at uh, Galatians chapter 4. Let's pick up in verse 21. Tell me, you who desire, now listen to that, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? For it, was, it is written that Abraham had two sons, 
one by a slave woman and one by a free woman. But the son of the slave was born according to the flesh, while the son of the free woman was born through promise. Now, this may be interpreted, interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai, bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now, Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother, for it is written, quoting from Isaiah 54, Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. Break forth and cry aloud, you who are not in labor. For the children of the desolate, one will be more than those of the one who has a husband. Now you, brothers and sisters, like Isaac, are children of promise. But just as, as at the time he who was born according to the flesh persecuted him who was born according to the Spirit, so also it is now. But what does Scripture say? Cast out the slave woman and her son, for the son of the slave woman shall not inherit with the son of the free woman. So brothers, we are not children of the slave, but of the free woman. For freedom, the Messiah has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to the yoke of slavery. One reason that we need to really look at the historical situation is most of us don't really have a desire or an inkling to go back to really Hebrew law. That's not that tempting to us, although I hope to show that we kind of lean that way more than you think we do. And so we need to understand uh, this, this, uh, the law and also understand freedom. I want to talk a little bit about legalism and then the narrative of Abraham, because he's mentioned six times here so, uh, in Galatians, so we need to understand it. So the historical setting as it relates to the law. I, I mentioned this a few weeks ago, but there was... At the time, after the, the Old Testament is kind of closed and the rabbinical uh, writings were going on and the, the, the Talmud, uh, one rabbi declared there were 613 laws in the Old Testament. Now, he said there's 365 negative commands corresponding to the number of solar days in a year and 248 positive commands corresponding to the number of bones covered with flesh. This was the thinking at the time. Now, just so you know, rabbis love to argue about things, okay? So not every rabbi agreed on this, but this was kind of the general thinking. There were 613 laws. And um, here's what, what Paul is saying here. Verse 21, tell me, you who desire to be under the law, do you not listen to the law? Uh, you... You have to understand, if you're going to say, I love the law, then you've got to love the whole thing. 613 laws. Okay, And so what Paul is reminding them is, if you get to the end of Deuteronomy, when, when Moses is 
uh, giving his kind of recap of all the laws and this big sermon, uh, Moses says this, and if you faithfully obey the voice of the Lord your God, being careful to do all his commandments that I have commanded you today, the Lord your God will set you high above all the nations of the earth. All the laws. You don't get to just pick and choose. Paul says in the next chapter, in our next sermon, he says this, I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision, that's the law, the, the, all the obligations that go with it, that he is obligated to keep the whole law. So those of you who love the law, are you really keeping all of it? Now, again, we look at this and we go, well, that's not really an issue for me. We're not eating kosher and, you know, we're not wearing the things on our forehead or on our wrist and we're not really doing that. But I grew up in a Baptist church. And so I want to say time out. Um, I teach uh, Bible study methods at uh, Corbin University and one of my favorite classes is when we talk about how do we know which Old Testament laws we're supposed to obey. And what I do is I take the students to Leviticus chapter 19 and we read the entire chapter. And I say, okay, which one of these Old Testament laws are we supposed to obey? And I'll just give you a couple of heads up in here. One of them is don't get a tattoo. College students, they love to have this discussion. I say, how many of you grew up in a church where you were told not to get a tattoo? They all, most of them, you know, like, yes. Okay, I remember that. I remember those sermons. I remember those lectures. It looked like this. The Bible says, no tattoos. Now, also in that passage, it says that you are to care for the sojourners and illegal aliens. I never heard that sermon. And so how do I, how do, how does this one apply and this one doesn't? You see, the Bible, if you're going to obey the law, Paul is saying, you don't get to pick and choose which ones apply. And people say, well, this is the lecture. You see, Dave, some laws are for everyone. Some laws are only for Israel as a nation. And some laws are because of the, you know, the, the way they worship the temple and things, and those are done in Christ. That's, that's, the, that's the, just so you know, that's the theological answer. And I say, great, Leviticus 19, chapter, class, go, which ones are which? Because it doesn't say, thus saith the Lord for Israel till Christ comes. So how do you know this one does and this one doesn't? You see, it puts us in a really bad situation. And as Baptists, I have grown up in a situation where we have picked and choose which laws apply and which ones don't. That's my, that's my experience. I'm not going to answer the problem for you today. You have to take my class. So as it relates to the law, Paul is reminding us, 
If you're going to say you have to obey the law, then you have to obey all of it. Second, as it relates to freedom. And uh, when Paul says for freedom, chapter 5, verse 1, Christ has set us free. You know, I hear that word in the New Testament, and I'm just going to be perfectly honest with you. I don't think I really grasp what it means to be free in Christ. I mean, I know the language. I can use it in a sentence. But I don't know if in my heart I really understand what it means to be free in Christ. And I just kind of wrestled with that this week. And this, this was my wrestling for me this week. I said, Dave, you need to understand this better. John Piper had a definition I just loved. And uh, so I want to share it with you. He said this, full freedom is what you have when no lack of opportunity, no lack of ability, no lack of desire prevents you from doing what will make you happiest in a thousand years. Now, he had this great illustration. And uh, I just want to share it, and and, uh, I just want to kind of walk through this idea of freedom because it's very freeing. First of all, he says, it has no lack of opportunity. I'm sorry, I thought I had notes there. I don't. Let me go back. Okay. Oh, man. All right. Um, No lack of of opportunity. And he said this, which I don't relate to, and uh, John, uh, uh, Rod's not here to defend himself, but but, uh, Piper said, what if you wanted to go skydiving? And you made an appointment with a group of people that did that, and you had the opportunity to go skydiving, but as you're driving there, you hit a pothole and blew out your tire, you no longer have the opportunity. In order to do something that you want to do, you have to have the opportunity. That's true. He says, well, second, you have to have the ability. Let's say you get there, but you've never skydived before, and they're not going to train you how to do it, and they just say, go for it. I don't think I want to do that. I don't have the ability. I don't know what I'm supposed to do. But let's say you get there and you have an appointment and they teach you how to do it. And now you're really excited and you get up in the plane and they open up the door. And all of a sudden you go, I don't think I want to do this. I don't have the desire anymore. It's completely left me. Now I just want to say, that desire would have been way before that situation. But you get there and you go, I don't, I don't know if I want to do it. But your girlfriend's there. Right? You've already paid. There, everybody's egging you on. And so now you, you're jumping just out of pure, pure pressure. And Piper says this. That's the way a lot of professing Christians try to keep the commandments of Christ. They don't really delight to do them, but they feel some uncomfortable constraints like social pressure or fear of hell or desire to impress someone. So they go through the outward motions of obedience, but the desire of their heart is fixed somewhere else. 
They do not enjoy the freedom of desire, which Christ gives us when he is being formed in the heart. And he's referring to what Paul had just said in just a few verses before this in chapter 4, verse 19, where Christ is being formed in us. So he says you have to have the opportunity, you have to have the ability, you have to have the desire. And he ends this, which I just love this definition. He says, with what will make you happiest in a thousand years. What he's talking about is unending joy. See, there are things in this world that will make you happy for a moment. But it won't last. And so Piper said it this way, you're jumping out of the plane. And you wanted to jump, and you had the opportunity, and you know what to do, and you pull the cord, and nothing happens. That joy is going to end real quick. So in other words, the freedom of opportunity, ability, and desire needs to lead to life. And so he doesn't say just what makes you happy for a moment, but what's going to make you happy for a thousand years? Freedom in Christ is not that we obey the laws because we have to. It's because in Christ, we have the opportunity and desire to experience real life. And I grew up in the church. I was a pew kid. I went to Sunday school. I tagged along with grandma and grandpa. I, I went to youth group. I went to Christian school. And I got more you ought than you have. I got more sermons of you better than there's joy in Christ. And I've been a pastor for 30 years. And I repent because I'm sure I've preached more sermons of you better than God's best. There is freedom in Christ that even followers of Jesus keep leaving for some false gospel. Our small group... um, Guys, that meets on Tuesday morning, we've been reading a book by Jeff Vandersloot called Gospel Fluency. And uh, yesterday, the chapter just came at this, sometimes when you're reading something in the Bible or in a book, sometimes it just hits you right when you need it to. And it was quiet. Janine had kind of slipped back into bed. She didn't sleep good. And I was up on Saturday morning, and I, I overcame the temptation to turn on a football game that I didn't really want to watch. And I began reading this chapter and it just spoke to me. And one of the things that he was saying is when we are being tempted, when we're being tempted to believe that we're not good enough, when we're being tempted to believe that something that is wrong will bring us joy when really it won't, when we're being tempted to go through the same patterns that always lead to destruction, he said that we need to take those thoughts captives. We need to actually stop just having that thought and say, you know what, I'm going to take that off the shelf 
And I'm going to examine that thought because it's come around before. You take it captive. And you bring it under submission. I I just love that. We're going to examine this. I'm going to bring you... This thought, you're not good enough, Dave. That thought, I wrestle with that. I'm going to take that off the shelf and I'm I'm going to start examining it. And then consider the fruit. Where does this go in a thousand years? Where does this go if I keep living to this? And fight it with the gospel. And fighting with the gospel means, you know what? In Christ, I'm enough. It's Christ that works through me. It's not Dave pulling himself up. It's remembering that when God said, this is my son in whom I'm well pleased, that if I am in Christ, he's saying that to me. There is freedom. Why do we keep going back to legalism? There's a lure to legalism, if we're honest. And uh, one commentator had four classes of legalism. Class one legalist obeys the laws to earn God's favor or salvation. We think of the rich young ruler. What must I do to be saved? And Jesus replies, obey the law. And the rich young ruler's going, there's 613 of them. Which ones? Can you narrow that down for me? And Jesus says, I'll give you the Ten Commandments. And he says, I've obeyed all of those. And Jesus says, let's challenge that because in that, love God, love your neighbor as yourself, are you willing to give up everything and follow me? No, I'm not. Obey the laws to earn God's favor. A class two legalist, they understand that the list of commands and deeds and spiritual disciplines, they can't earn it, but they feel like if they do enough of them, if if I just do a little bit more, then I'll win God's favor. God will have to notice me. I've been working real hard. A class three legalist, they love God's law, possibly more than they love God. Therefore, they create more rules to protect people from breaking God's law. We call those group of people Pharisees. The class four legalists are more comfortable with the laws than they are with freedom. They believe in God's redeeming work through Jesus Christ, but they feel an obligation, a duty, to obey the laws. So their sermon sounds something like, Jesus died for you, therefore don't disappoint him by, insert sin here, Instead of, because of the death, resurrection, and new life in Jesus Christ, we have the opportunity and ability and desire through the Spirit to live in a way that brings joy and life. And I confess, I am a class three, four legalist in recovery. My name is Dave Fields. And I have a tendency towards legalism. So Paul brings us to Abraham again. 
and he wants to remind us of the story. And some, most of you know it, but remember Abraham is called out of Ur and he says, I'm going to give you a people and, and a nation and a blessing and the whole world is going to be blessed through you. And Abraham says, awesome, God, that's great. One problem, I don't have any kids. And we're getting kind of old. God says, I'm going to take care of that. And they kind of go through waiting for this promise. It doesn't come right away, which, by the way, is not one of my favorite features of God. I just sometimes he's kind of like, I'm going to do this, and you're like, I'm on board, but I'll do it sometime later. And so as time passes, Sarah goes through menopause. She's older than old now, right? Sorry. And God says, oh, just a reminder, I'm going to give you a son. And they're like, really? Do you know the situation here? So Sarah says, I got an idea. This is something that our culture does. I'll give you my servant, Abraham, as a wife, and you have a child through her. I don't know where the guys are, their heads are in this situation. Abraham's like, okay. So they have a child, Ishmael, and it's like, what happened here? Abraham and Sarah said, God promised something, we're going to make it happen. So God comes back and says, I'm going to give you a son. And Abraham and Sarah, well, we kind of took care of that. Yeah, it's not what I'm talking about. And they have a son. Miraculously, right? She's 90. I'm looking out at this room. How many of you are like thinking about it? A few more years. She's 90. They have a son. This causes some tension. Ishmael is laughing at the situation. Sarah doesn't like it. And she says, you need to get rid of that kid. And Abraham says, can I remind you that this was a, your idea? No, he doesn't say that. Because <laughs> he's older and wiser. And so Ishmael, Ishmael was a product of self-reliance. It's for us a reminder that sometimes we won't wait on God's promises and we take them into our own hands. Isaac, Isaac was a son of promise. And the lesson is the only acceptable response to God's merciful promise is to trust in the promise, not works of the flesh. not works of the flesh that try to bring down God's blessing with our effort. And so Paul says, you, you with me now? You remember this story? We got the son of the flesh and the son of the promise. And he goes, you know what? There's a really good story in this. And it's kind of confusing if you don't know all the, I mean, just reading it, it just doesn't flow well. And so I went to what I teach my class, Bible study methods, and I said, let's make a chart. And it's really helpful. So the chart's there in your notes. It's up here. 
And so we have two people, Hagar, right, and Sarah. And he says in here, Hagar is a slave woman. Sarah is free. We're making a contrast here. So Ishmael was a product of this self-reliance. He refers to it as flesh, these fleshly decisions. Isaac was a product of promise, and later he refers to that as the spirit. So flesh versus spirit. Hagar, he says, represents the old covenant. Okay, it's actually the second covenant because it came 400 years after the promise, but he refers to that here, child of slavery, Hagar is Mount Sinai. That's where they receive the law. But he goes back to this idea that Sarah is the covenant of promise. It's really interesting what Paul does here. Uh, he's a lawyer and he just does an uppercut here because what he is, what's supposed to happen is I'm sure these same Judaizers came in and made the argument and said, look, you have to be children of Abraham. And Paul is saying, they're right. You need to be children of Abraham. But children of Abraham are children of promise, not of law. He changes the script on them. And so he says, Hagar is this present Jerusalem slavery. That's an insult to the Judaizers. And he talks about a Jerusalem from above that represents freedom. Now, give it a choice. Do you want slavery or freedom? You go, freedom. And so he says the offspring of Ishmael and Hagar, they're the legalists. And the offspring of Sarah are free. That's the allegorical story that he's telling. And so let me just come back to this legalism one more time. Why do we keep going back to it? Why do we like legalism? And I would say there's a few things. One is legalism gives us a sense of control. We, we control our own situation. And legalists really don't have the freedom of joy that those who are in Christ. We like categories. We want our identity to be very clear. So legalists don't really want to have much opportunity. They just want to say, this is who is good, this is who is bad. The good people do this, the bad people do that. And here's the problem with that, is there's very little change from one group to another. And I actually want to give you a biblical example. I know we haven't got past Thanksgiving yet, but we are past Halloween. So I want to give you a Christmas example. From Matthew chapter 1. And I think that we often miss this in the, in the Christmas story. We read right over what is happening here. And it's really profound. So in Matthew chapter 1, the birth of Christ foretold in verse 18, it says, Now the birth of Jesus the Messiah took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, or some of your translations say, being a righteous man. Now here's how we've read this. Oh, Joseph's the nice guy. 
That's nice. We've got a good man here. He's going to make a good decision. It's not what the text is telling you. What the text is telling you is that he had obeyed the laws of that day to be put in the category of just. He was a man of good standing. In his community, he had a reputation as a law obeyer that gave him certain rights and privileges therein. He was just. He got into the good places. Now, having a wife that is pregnant out of wedlock is going to take that standing away. You will no longer be considered in your community a righteous or just man. See, in the story for us, his standing doesn't change. But Matthew is telling us his standing in his community is about to change. So this is why it goes on to say, being a just man and unwilling to put her to shame, possibly costing her life, resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife. What is the fear? Don't fear to lose your reputation. Don't fear taking your position in the community away. Don't fear that. That's hard for a legalist. That's hard. See, the Judaizers want God's blessing, but they want it to come on their terms. They don't want God in a relationship. They want a genie in a bottle. They want to feel like they earned it, that they deserve it. There's really no freedom of ability. We want to feel like we're grown up. Now, I want to give those of you who grew up in the church a little quiz this morning. Those of you who grew up in the church, you all sang a song. And, and all of you, if you grew up in the church and you don't know this one, I'm going to question your Baptist heritage. I'm not going to sing it because I can't carry a tune, but it goes like this. Jesus loves me, this I know. For the Bible tells me so. Little ones to him belong. What's the next word? Wrong. It's not they are weak. That's how I sang it. That's, that's what came to my mind. You know what it is? We are weak. We are weak. We're not saying those children are weak. The song is telling you a doctrinal truth. We are weak, but he is strong. Isn't it funny how we've changed that? We are weak. I don't want to be weak. They're weak. That's just a slight change. You're all going to go and look it up now. I'm telling you it's we. Here's the practical application. I, I thought you'd all get it. I thought I was the only one that did it. 
The gospel is good news to those who are barren spiritually. So he cites uh, Isaiah 54 here uh, in verse 27. And it sounds a little weird. Rejoice, O barren one who does not bear. The gospel is good news for those who are barren. Now, this verse in Isaiah, uh, originally the prophet uh, was talking to Jewish exiles in Babylon. This is about 1,200 years after Abraham, 600 years before Paul. And the remaining Israelites, they're, in, they're now in captivity, and they're thinking their national life is all over. They would never return home. They would never have a country of their own. They're captives. They're failures. They're weak. They're helpless. They're exiles, and they're in exiles because they're being punished. And what Isaiah is saying is, what Paul is grabbing a hold of, is now that you're helpless, you will see that it is the weak in whose lives my grace works. The strong are too busy relying on themselves. I will make you numerous and great. We are weak, but he is strong. The gospel is good news for those of us who are barren. The gospel is good news of, us, of, of those of us who are disappointing failures. Now, some of you, I know, you grew up in the church and you've been a church person all your life and you've tried to obey all the rules and you are a member in good standing, but when you go home and you close your eyes, you know the things that you've done. And even though everybody in the church thinks you're a saint, you lay in bed worried that you're a disappointing failure. And I know you think that because that's what Satan wants you to think. That's what the accuser does. And the gospel is good news because it's not in me that it is done. It is through Christ. The gospel is good news to those who are captive to sinful choices. You say, Dave, I didn't grow up in the church. I don't know what you're talking about. They or we, it doesn't matter to me. I never sang that song. My life was a disaster from the beginning. And I've made bad choices over and over again. And I have addictions and pains and sorrows. And Paul says, to you, the gospel is good news because he wants to set you free. The gospel is good news to those who are on the outside looking in. I remember one time I did a funeral right in this building. And as a pastor, you know, you kind of walk the family out. And I was standing in the back and there was a guy who didn't know him. He was just part of the family. And as he was leaving, he stopped and he turned around and he looked at our sanctuary. And then he looked at me and he said, hmm, the walls didn't fall in. I mean, he thought for sure, I guess, if he set foot in a church, God was just gonna... Man, there are people who think that they are never gonna be good enough to be accepted by you. They're on the outside looking in. And the gospel says, no, we're all on the outside looking in, but by the grace of Jesus Christ. And I want to say this. The gospel is good news to those who think they're somehow on the inside looking out. Because religious legalists need Jesus just as much as immoral failures.
we need the grace of God. So here's the application. We need to confess where we have tried to make our weakness, to mask our weakness with legalism. And what I mean by that is we recognize that we're weak, and so we try to put all these rules on other people and us and say, look, I'm obeying the rules, even though we're, we're totally disobeying these rules over here that we don't want to point out to people. And so we need to confess where we've tried to make people think we're more righteous than we are by declaring these things. We need to confess where we've tried to keep people away from us with our legalism. And we need to embrace our inability and fully trust the promise of God. We are weak, but he is strong. I invite you as you leave today, we're gonna sing a song here in a moment, but when you leave to grab the communion elements and when you take those today, that you would be reminded that the bread and the blood is a constant reminder that we couldn't live the life that Christ lived for us and we couldn't give the sacrifice that Christ did for us. The bread and the cup represent everything we can't do, but everything he did because he loves us. Father God, thank you for this morning. Thank you for this difficult passage, the challenge that it calls us to. And I confess that I have leaned into legalism, that I have probably preached legalism, that I don't fully grasp what it means for me to live free in Christ because I've just put so many rules in my life to try to make myself feel better. And Lord, I know, I, I, I know the faces, I know the people that are listening, and I know many people have done the same. So may we just come to you today and say, thank you for being who I could not be, and thank you for giving what I could not give, that I might be free in Jesus Christ to have the opportunity and ability and desire to have life and have it to the full. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.